The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 59, to the chief musician, set to do not destroy, a michtam of David, when Saul sent men, and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity, and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold, you therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors, Selah. At evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath, consume them, that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. And at evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power, yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O oh my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. Okay, we're in Esther 9 once again. We're doing verses 18 through 32 today. This is entitled, The Days of Purim. So Esther 9, starting in verse 18. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far, who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast poor, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. 
But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants, and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year, according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed times, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihael, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. The 30th Psalm is one which could have been written specifically for the circumstances which surrounded the Jews during the time of Esther. Though it was written by David many centuries earlier, it fits their situation so very well. Other than the several references to the Lord, which are lacking in Esther, the contents reflect going from hopelessness to joy and from utter defeat to triumph. And then again, the words reflect the life and times of Joseph, of David himself, and of course, Jesus. Yes, David may have been writing about his own terrible plight, but there is no doubt that he was prophesying about events in the life of the Lord. And yet the parallels don't end there. The Jews endured many more such occasions in one form or another over the past 2,000 years, culminating in the Holocaust and followed by her reestablishment. But even that is not the end of the story. The book is written, and we know what is coming upon Israel in the future. In fact, it will be worse than anything yet. But there will be an end to that too. When all seems hopeless, the Lord will once again deliver them, and they will once again sing in elation. Our text verse comes from Psalm 30. It's the first verse. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. It's a wonderful thing to contemplate, and yet it is mournful to consider what will lead up to their deliverance. How much better for them to just get on their knees and call out to the Lord now before the times of real trouble arise. But as I said, the book is written. What is coming must come, and then Israel will be delivered. As Daniel says, at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. All I can say is thank God for Jesus. He has taken away the prospect of such terror for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't face our own horror. I want you to know that. A million and a half Armenians were destroyed by the Turks in the early 1900s. Countless other Christians have faced the same end at the hand of their foes. Thousands have died in Africa in the past couple of weeks being killed because they're Christians. But unlike those who don't know Christ, that is not the end for us. It is simply a step into a new beginning. The terror of dying for humanity is that of an end followed by eternal separation. 
There is no hope, no second chance, and only eternity to contemplate what was lost. Again, thank God for Christ Jesus. In him there is hope, and there is a new beginning. Someday the whole world will find that out. For now, there are temporary victories leading to that final great day when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the ocean. It's all heading there, and it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. It's a rather short sermon. From sorrow to joy is verses 18 through 25. Verse 18, but the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th. Today we begin our verses with the word but. This then is showing a contrast to the verse which we ended on in the last sermon. There it said, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Those Jews who defended themselves from their enemies and who lived in the provinces had fought on the 13th of the month and they rested on the 14th of the month. In contrast to that, we saw Esther's petition to the king in verse 13 requesting that Jews in Shushan be granted an additional day of fighting against their enemies. The king granted her a petition and so now we read of that to begin us today. Excuse me. Thus, the fighting was on both the 13th and the 14th of Adar. With that finished, they too, like those in the provinces, then celebrated the victory over their enemies by gathering together. It is the same verb as was used in verse 16. There is an assembly of the Jews no longer to fight, but to rejoice. Verse 18 continues, and on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. They had rest from their enemies, and so now, like those in the provinces, they enter into their rest, making it a day of mishteh ve'simcha, or banqueting and joy. Being a banqueting feast, the people brought out wine, and they celebrated abundantly. Because of this occurring a day later than the rest of the provinces, we next read verse 19. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar. The word dwelt should be in the present tense, dwell. It is speaking of the custom which arose out of the events. Two rather rare but almost identical words are used here in this verse. The first is parazzi, or villages. It is used only three times in the Bible, this being the last of the three. The second is parazza, or unwalled towns. It also being used only three times, and this being the first. The first was used to speak of villages outside of Israel, specifically east of the Jordan and then in the land of the Philistines west of Israel proper. The second speaks of the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem of the distant future, our time right now in human history, when Israel will be a land of unwalled villages, that's recorded in Ezekiel 38, and Jerusalem would be likewise, that's recorded in Zechariah 2 verse 4. For now... The Jews of the empire's villages and unwalled towns celebrated on the 14th. In the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, that's one of the, it's called the intertestamental period. You have the apocrypha. In one of the books, 2 Maccabees, it is recorded that this 14th day of Adar became known as the day of Mordecai. It is the main day on which the Jews celebrated, verse 19 continues, with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. Again, as before, the time is described as one of joy and banqueting. 
the term holiday here does not necessarily mean that they took a day off, okay? Rather, the Hebrew says, and a good day. Thus, whether working or not, it is to be a day of celebration. On this day, they would send out mana, or portions to one another, usually meaning sweet cakes and the like. In this verse, there is a complete contrast to that of verse 4-3, which said, And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now let me read this verse to you again. With gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. You can see the contrast between the two. The mourning had turned to joy, the weeping and wailing had turned into banqueting, and the sackcloth and ashes ashes were replaced with the sending of gifts of food to one another. This then is similar to the response found in Revelation 11 verse 10 after the killing of the two witnesses where it says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. This remains the custom of those in the Middle East today, and it will, as you see, continue on into the end times. If you remember after uh, 9-11, when the Muslims went in and blew up the Twin Towers, the people in Gaza were out there doing exactly this. They were giving gifts to each other and portions of food, exactly the same as will happen with the two witnesses. It's a custom in the Middle East. Verse 20, and Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. The verse begins with Vayiktov Mordecai et Hadevarim Ha'eleh, or and wrote Mordecai the words, the these. It seems straightforward enough, but scholars are at war as to what these things refers to. Is it what has occurred or what he will now convey? If it is what occurred, does it comprise the book of Esther up to this point or the events of the past few days, which will lead to what will next be stated? Whatever it's referring to, it is a letter by the second highest in the land to all of the people. As you can see, what seems obvious at first does get a bit complicated as you study on. In the end, the result comes out the same. A commemoration is forthcoming. Verse 21, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th day of the months of Adar. The reason for this here seems clear. The Jews in the provinces fought on one day and celebrated on the next. On the other hand, the Jews in Shushan fought on two days and celebrated on the third day. In order to bring conformity to the annual celebrations of this day, Mordecai establishes two days of celebration. It seems, based on this, that the these things of the previous verse were the details of what had occurred. They are thus presented as justification to all who were unaware of the events in Shushan for holding a two-day festival. Verse 22, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies. It is not the days of fighting which are celebrated, but the days of resting. The Jews in the country rested on the 14th, and the Jews in Shushan rested on the 15th. These days of rest are combined into one celebration. It is a pattern which is actually set at creation. God labored, and then he rested. Thus, he sanctified the seventh day. Later, for Israel, the Sabbath was instituted as a day of rest in the commemoration of that. That's recorded in the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 11. But it was also instituted as a day of rest based on their deliverance from Egypt. That's found in Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. 
The celebration of Purim follows both patterns, rest after labors and rest after deliverance. Verse 22 continues, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday. Again, we see in these words the stark contrast between the mourning and wailing in sackcloth and ashes of the initial announcement by Haman and the joy and celebration of what finally occurred. God took that which was evil and he turned it around for good. Verse 22 continues, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. The intent of Mordecai's letter was to establish a remembrance of what occurred. In order to solidify that, the days were to become special days with more than just a memory of what happened, but an active participation in the day. Thus, each year, the people would come to anxiously anticipate this celebration. And so the commemoration each year was to follow what occurred on the first occasion, feasting, joy, and sending portions of food. And one extra expectation is given, that of sending gifts to the poor. The obvious reason for this addition is that all Jews were delivered, and thus all Jews, even the poor, should be able to participate in and celebrate what occurred. In this verse is the last use of the word mishte, or banqueting, in the entire book of Esther. Out of 46 uses in the Old Testament, 20 of them, 20 have been seen in this teeny little book of Esther. It's remarkable when considering the size of this book. But it shows the importance of banqueting to the turning of events in the story itself and thus in history itself. And so a festival of banqueting is appropriate to remember this fact. One can picture the words of Isaiah in the joy of the Jews here. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, the Mishdeh, or banquet, is actually seen twice. I want to compare the story of Esther that we've been reading and see how well it fits into Isaiah's prophecy of the future. Here's what it says. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Verse 23. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. The custom would be remembered for a year or a few years, and then it is possible that it would slowly be forgotten. Further, for those who celebrated, they would remember the day of their rest, be it the 14th or the 15th. In order to have all join in a united celebration, and in order that the day would never dwindle away, Mordecai wrote to them of the things that occurred and to remember them in this special way year by year. It says here that the Jews accepted this, receiving it as a permanent custom. And the reason now is given, verse 24, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them. Here, the entire title of Haman is given. He is the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and he is the enemy of the Jews. It is also the last time that he's going to be mentioned in the Bible. In a short recap, we are reminded that it is he who had plotted against the Jews in order to annihilate them. 
but instead it is he who saw annihilation. Verse 24 continues, and had cast poor, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. This takes us back to chapter 3, where Haman had cast the poor, or the lot, in order to set a date for the destruction of the Jews. He may have known the Lord who is the God of the Jews, but what he was probably unaware of is what that meant concerning lots. This is something I read you back then in chapter 3. I'll read it again now. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. As a sort of ironic twist of the Hebrew, the word hamam or consume is used here in this verse. It says lehumam ule abedam, to consume them and destroy them. Hamam is a word almost always used to speak of an action coming directly from the Lord in order to overthrow his enemies and throw them into confusion. It is probably being used here as a play on the name of Haman, which in Hebrew is Haman. So Haman tried to Hamam the Jews, but instead Haman got Hamamed by the Lord. This is next scene with verse 25. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. The name Esther is inserted into this verse. It's not in the Hebrew and it seems way out of place to do this. It is more likely speaking of the matter itself. Something like, and when the matter was brought before the king. Once the truth was brought to his attention, the action necessary to rectify the situation was commanded. Interestingly, and in accord with using the word hamam in the previous verse, it doesn't give the details about the deliverance of the Jews, but instead it deals with the plot itself and how it was turned back on Haman and his sons. One can infer divine retribution is the intent of the words here. A celebration of the foe's defeat, a time to rest in the work accomplished, a time when the ruler reigns from his royal seat. Now there is peace, war and strife is abolished. Here we relax and rejoice in what has been done. In this place there is peace and rest. Who can steal our joy? We looked, and there is none. We are no longer downtrodden, no longer oppressed. The days of working for peace and rest have now passed behind. They are no more. In garments of luxury we now find ourselves dressed. We have arrived on that marvelous, peaceful shore. Our second thought today is words of peace and truth. It's verses 26 through 32. Verse 26, so they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. This one verse looks backward and then forward. First, it looks backward to what has been said, and it gives a name based on that, Purim. The Jews gave the Persian word Pur their own Hebrew plural, calling it the celebration of Purim. The I-M is simply like an S on one of our words. It is a plural marker. The verse also looks forward to what will next be said. Verse 26 continues, Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them. The word letter here is igaret. It is completely different than the other seven times that the word letter or sefer has been used so far in the book of Esther. It signifies a letter such as an epistle. The three thoughts are combined into one whole in this verse. The words of this letter refers to what Mordecai had written. What they had seen refers to the events of providence that had come to pass before their eyes, and what had happened to them refers to the deliverance based on those events. These three give the reason that, verse 27, the Jews established 
and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. Verse 26 leading into verse 27 introduces our final set of twos in the book of Esther. It is the two letters instituting the commemoration of Purim. The first is here written by Mordecai. The second is written by Esther and Mordecai in verse 29. They contrast, and yet they confirm the instructions for the observance of the celebrations at their appointed time, year by year, and wherever the Jews were. Purim is more than just a voluntary annual celebration of remembrance, but a self-imposed time of remembrance. Mordecai gave the instructions, they were accepted, and the self-imposition of them became a resulting custom from that time on. It was to become, and indeed it is, as firm a date of remembrance as the Passover itself. All Jews, their descendants, and any who would join them, which means proselytes to their religion, observe the days. This is seen as we continue. Verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. An obvious question arises from the establishment of Purim. Is it of divine origin, or is it of human origin? The story is given in the book of Esther, which is a book of the Bible, but the imposition of the celebration came from a Jew, and not only a Jew, but one of the dispersion. It seems hardly likely that the Jews in Israel would feel the need to add something to their culture and their life that came from someone who was not a prophet or a priest, but it was accepted. As Mordecai was second to the king, and as the land of Israel was subject to the laws of Persia, and as there was nothing but good which had come from the matter, it was accepted as Mordecai had written. Thus, it was of human origin. However, it is as clear as it can be that the Lord had directed the events from the beginning all the way to the end in order to bring about the Jews' deliverance. Therefore, it is implicitly of divine origin and certainly divinely sanctioned. Hence, it's in our Bible. And this is all the more relevant because it is notable that Nisan is the first month of the Jewish calendar in Israel's redemptive calendar. The last month is the month of Adar. In both months, the 14th and the 15th of the month are considered special days. Nisan 14th is the Passover, and the 15th is the first day of unleavened bread. Adar 14 and 15 are now made special commemorations as well. The first recognized Israel's redemption from Egypt. The second recognizes deliverance from the enemies of God's people. The redemptive year thus opens and closes in recognition of the Lord's hand in the preservation of his people. Finally, as the proverb showed us, the Lord directs the lot. Therefore, the days are not accidental, but they are purposeful. The unseen hand of the Lord guided the events which lead to a national proclamation that the days of Purim would not cease. Therefore, wherever a Jew is and throughout his generations, the day is to be remembered as a day of deliverance. Verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. Here we have an interesting verse. It literally reads, Then wrote Esther the queen, daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, with all authority to confirm letter the Purim, the this, the second. 
Esther is suddenly brought back into the narrative, and she is writing the letter along with Mordecai. She's not only named, but so is the name of her father. That hasn't been seen since verse 215. The story is highlighting that Esther is the daughter of Abihail, or possessor of might. This is followed up with Mordecai, the Jew, instead of just Mordecai. And then it says that they have kal tokef, or full power. The word tokef is new here. It will be seen twice here in Esther and once in the book of Daniel. They are granted full power or authority to confirm a second letter about Purim. The word letter here is the same as in verse 26, igaret. This is the last time that it's used in the Bible. The words of the verse are widely translated, and scholars debate over what the true meaning is of what is being relayed. But because of the use of this word, igaret, it appears that the first letter is that of Mordecai in verse 26, and now a second letter is being issued by Esther along with Mordecai. This then closes out our final set of twos in the book, the two letters instituting the commemoration of Purim. The first was in verses 26 and 27, written by Mordecai. The second is here, written by Esther and Mordecai. They contrast, and yet they confirm the instructions for the observance of the celebration at their appointed time, year by year, and wherever the Jews find themselves. Verse 30, And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. These are not copies of the letter which were just written, but they are letters which would accompany that letter. It is a different word here, sefer, instead of igaret. It then explains why Mordecai is mentioned in the previous verse. Esther and Mordecai wrote the letter, and with it are accompanying letters, which then go out to all of the 127 provinces of the kingdom. As it says, they are letters with words of shalom ve'emet, or of peace and truth. What this may mean is that the letters began with a salutation, something like, peace and truth to you who receive this letter. Or it could mean that the substance of the words were both friendly in nature and sincere in content. Interestingly, and as a squiggle for your brain, the word emet is used, like the 127 provinces of the kingdom, 127 times in the Old Testament. And so we should stop here and evaluate the symbolic meaning of the word emet, or truth. Now, Sergio did this for you when I was out in Washington. He showed you the symbolic meaning of the word emet. This is something that Rhoda figured out, and then she and Sergio worked it out together, and I'm going to show you why this word is so important to understand. Truth in the Hebrew Bible is the word emet. It's based on the letters Aleph, Mem, and Tav. One, Aleph means strength, and it points to God. Tav, which is the last letter, means a mark, and it points to the cross of Jesus Christ. Mem is right in the center of the alphabet. Mem is a picture of water, and it means blood. The entire word, emet, is symmetrical in the Hebrew aleph bet. Aleph, mem, and tav. So you have there God, blood, cross. Jesus is the truth, the emet. He was, he is, he will be. Verse 31, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants. The three verbs, confirm, prescribe, and decree, are all from the same Hebrew word. The word means to stand. 
and thus it signifies fixing or establishing. The letters of Mordecai confirmed what was prescribed by both himself and Esther concerning the days of Purim, when it should be held, how it should be observed, and so on. Verse 31 continues concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. These words completely dumbfound scholars. First, the word fasting is plural. It should say fastings. Some claim the words are a later insertion. That's an easy way of getting out of things. You just say, blame it on somebody else, right? Some claim they are speaking of fasting and mourning on the 13th of the month, known as Esther's fast. Others just ignore any context at all, and they ramble on about the state of Esther and Mordecai when they first got the bad news about the annihilation of the Jews and how that should be continued on by the Jews in the future. What is probably correct is that the matters of their fastings and lamenting has nothing at all to do with the Feast of Purim. Instead, it is speaking of what is noted in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5. Here's what it says. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? The Jews already had customary times of fasting and lamenting as during their time of exile. They are not biblically mandated, but were customary times of mourning, just as Holocaust Remembrance Day is observed in Israel today. The days of Purim are now being tied in with those times of fasting and lamenting as customs to be observed by the Jews. Unlike those, however, Purim was always to be observed and by all people. Verse 32 finishes us up today with these words. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Esther was given authority to confirm the matters of Purim, something pertaining only to the Jews by a command. After that was accomplished, the details were written ba sefer, or in the book. The question is, what book? Some say it's the book of Esther, but that's not a natural way for a Hebrew author to refer to a book that he is writing in. Others think that it might be a book used as a basis for the book of Esther, which has not been preserved. But what is probably correct is that this is speaking of the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Persia and Medea. It has already been described this way four times in Esther, and there is no reason to assume that it isn't the same here. As a point of note, the Ma'amar, or decree of Esther, is the same word as was used concerning King Ahasuerus towards Vashti in verse 115. It is a command. This is the third and last use of it in the Bible. And as a curious finishing note to the verse and the chapter, Catholic Bibles, such as the Latin Vulgate and the Dewey Rhymes, translate this verse in the most odd manner. They say, and all things which are contained in the history of this book, which is called Esther. I'm going to read the verse again. I'm going to read that and you compare the two. Here's the verse in the Hebrew or from the Hebrew. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. Here's what the Catholic Bible says. And all things which are contained in the history of this book, which is called Esther. That is so far from the Hebrew that it had to be intentional. It may be that because the word ma'amar, or command, is coming from a woman, they intentionally changed the wording so that it could not conflict with later instructions in the Bible about women not having authority over men. If this is the case, as I suspect, that is a terribly stupid reason for changing the word of God. Deborah was a judge of Israel. 
And despite the circumstances, there was one ruling queen in Jerusalem. Her name was Athaliah. She was there for a little while, but she eventually got whacked and things got back on the right path with the male king. But the Bible is a record of what occurred and what was said, regardless of the propriety of the situation. Translations of the Bible need to reflect what is said, not what one desires for it to say. Please remember that. We now have one chapter of three verses left to go. What will come out in that sermon was unknown to me at my time of typing this particular sermon. Remember, we were taking the uh, Lord's Supper, and I said, I have no idea what's going to come out of this tomorrow, and I would ask you to pray for me. Like Jonah, I did not have my mind made up in advance, and so I can only present to you what the Lord revealed to me, as I believe he did, I could be wrong, of what is presented in these past nine chapters. For now, what I can tell you is that I hope you are much better informed on the book than when we started. If nothing else, we have reviewed every verse and every sentence and even every word at times with a view to the hidden Lord who is still clearly evident in its pages. He is, after all, the main subject of all of Scripture. What we need to do now and at all times as we read the Word is to think on Him, on His plan of redemption, and on what lies ahead for Israel as a people and for us as a body in that plan. With these things in mind, the Lord will continue to open our minds and reveal himself to us. As we have seen since chapter 1, his attention is on what is happening. He is there. He is directing the events, and what seems clearly hopeless is actually a chance for the Lord to shine through all the more in the end. Imagine the pain of those who walked with Christ as they saw him crucified. The darkness which must have covered their hearts would have been unimaginable, and yet, Despite the greatest moment of pitch black that they had ever encountered, there shone forth the most resplendent light that they could ever have imagined. This is what we need to focus on as we hit those black, dark moments in our lives. Children may be as lost as the prodigal son. Marriages may be torn and destroyed. Finances may be completely used up. But these things can never cover the light which lies ahead for the redeemed of the Lord. Israel went from sackcloth and ashes to feasting and joy. So too will we at the end of this very difficult road if we profess faith in Jesus Christ. He's already gone before us to open the doors and to prepare the table. Let us follow him until we pass through and sit down to dine, rejoicing in his marvelous presence for countless ages to come. Before we close, I'd like to tell you all that uh, Jack Colvin is doing much better. He finally got a good report a couple days ago. He went in. Everything was fine except his ticker wasn't ticking properly. And so he went in. They've got that all worked out properly. And so I assume that he's out playing tennis right now because he's not here at church. He's probably not playing tennis, okay? But I'm very happy that Jack is well and that the Lord delivered him from that. And so we want to rejoice in that. We want to keep the other people mentioned at the beginning of this uh, uh, meeting today in prayer, especially Darla, who has to go under the knife tomorrow. And you never know when you go under the knife if there's an infection coming or something else. So please pray for her. We also have somebody in this church that is going to face a lot of trouble in the week ahead, possible trouble, but a stressful situation is what they're facing. And so I would ask that you would just, uh, an unknown uh, person that needs prayer, and the Lord knows who it is and what it is, and we would want to pray for that in this individual's life as well. 
okay? And anybody else that has troubles, please email me. I stop every time somebody emails with a prayer request and I pray. And then if I know that I can put it on the uh, update or during the, the Bible class on Thursday, I will. But I don't always do that because sometimes I don't have permission or I just forget to write it down. But I do pray for everybody that has a prayer request when it comes in. So remember these people. Remember to say a prayer of praise for uh, Jack's deliverance and uh, that he's now okay. And remember that you will not be going to heaven unless you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm not going to close this sermon without talking about what the Lord Jesus did for us. That's just not appropriate. There's only one of two ways that I ever want to close a sermon. One is to tell you about how Jesus can meet that need in your life, or two is how he can cause you, who may have been falling away from him, to get reattached to him. And I'll do that once in a while. But today we need to just talk about the the way that you come to know that you are saved and that you are going to be redeemed by the Lord. And that is by one simple act. And that act is of faith. God has done all of the work. He's done everything necessary to bring you back to himself. There is no thing that you can do. People spend all of their life out doing good stuff, trying to earn God's favor. They know he's there. They do something nice and they think, gee, God must be happy with me today. And I am sorry, but your sins have separated you from your God. He does not see what you do. He does not hear your prayers because of that. But he instead did the work. This is what is very difficult for all people to understand is that God did the work for us. He sent Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law of Israel to redeem people from the law. God has a standard and we must meet that standard perfectly, but we cannot do it on our own. Instead, Jesus Christ did it for us. He lived that life and then he gave that life up in exchange for ours. This is what God asks us to do is to have faith in that act. Jesus Christ fulfilled this law. He died in my place and he rose again to prove that he had no sin of his own. If you have faith in that act, you are saved. That is what the Bible teaches. But there is no other way to be reconciled to God. And if you can't accept that a man came out of the grave after being dead, then you will never be saved. You must come to the final resolution in your own heart and mind that you can accept God's premise. Receive it by faith and you will be saved. And then from there, go out and do good things for Jesus Christ, just as he did for you, something really marvelous that you can never repay. No matter how many eons you work for it, you will never repay him. Just be grateful and go forth in his good blessings. Our closing verse today comes again from Psalm 30. It's verses 11 and 12. Think of our words today. Think of the words of last week as well. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Next week is Esther 10. It's verses one through three. We got a lot of verses to get through. I will say this. It's only three verses. It's the longest sermon I've ever typed, and I had to cut out a ton, okay? So I'm sorry. We're going to have a shorter prophecy update next week, and we're going to have a longer sermon because we got to get done eventually. Really powerful and famous was this guy. It's entitled The Greatness of Mordecai. That'll be our 13th and final Esther sermon. And unfortunately, Bob isn't going to be here next week, and I'm going to turn off the streaming so he can't watch it where he's at, and then we're not going to let him know. I'm going to take it off the internet, so you're never going to know what happened in Esther. Oh. <laughs> we'll miss you while you're gone, Bob, but I know that you'll be, you'll be catching up on it. It'll be a good, it'll be a good thing. I, like I said, not everybody's going to be happy with my conclusions, but I got to go where I think the Lord has sent us with this book. And uh, 
uh, so there we go. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times, you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life. But he has brought you to this moment. Now remember this, because as I said, we got somebody in this church that's going to have a difficult time this week. He has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called The Days of Purim. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th, after great success. And on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day, woohoo, and no brother, of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far, who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, hip, hip, hooray, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy for sure, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, with this good news, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast poor, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. There they hung, eleven of them, dead. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them, how things turned for the better... The Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants far and near, and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year, according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time with happy elation, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants, but should be kept alive, this happy news. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim, this thing he did do. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the provinces 127 of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, words without leaven, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther for them had prescribed, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants, concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting, as they had described. So the decree of Esther, these matters of Purim confirmed, and it was written in the book, thus it was affirmed. Lord God, we thank you for your presence that is with us, even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our minds and our hearts to seeing you always. Through every step we take and throughout every day, be real to us, O God, and to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the happiness, the elation of the people of Israel when they were delivered from the enemy of the Jews. And we know that 
We have been individually delivered as well. We have a happy rest that we are in now, even if we haven't received our final place of rest, our final resting in that place, that is. But Lord, the Jews of Israel are going to face a real difficult time in the years ahead because they have not yet called on you. And so we would pray that they would, many of them would turn from their their self-Jewishness and turn to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of the things that they hope for and aspire to, that they would realize that you have come, that you have provided that avenue to salvation, and there's not something which is lying ahead, but something which is there for them right now. Help them to realize this. And Lord, we pray for each of the people that is mentioned at the beginning of this uh gathering today and that we just mentioned a moment ago in praise and thanks in petition and supplication and hopeful desires that people will be delivered from troubles lord we pray for these things and we exalt you because of who you are that even if we have troubles in this life and we are sure to have more of them there's no doubt about that we are delivered from them in their finality because of what jesus did we will someday be in a place of eternal joy And we look forward to that day and may that day be soon. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.